0: The wreck was huge, quite in, intact, with the big bollards still on the, on the deck. And when I was diving down, I was following my Dennis, and he was just ahead of me. And suddenly, the seabed right in front of me was a carpet of bright green. It was as bright as any lawn that had just been cut in the garden. It was so bright, and it turned out when I got down to it, I put my hands into it. It was thousands and thousands of .303 bullets that had fallen out of the rotten rotten wooden boxes that were carrying them. Aquanaut: my adventures and misadventures in the early days of scuba diving off the Cornish coast. Written and read by me, James Wheeler I want to talk next about the wreck of the Pindos um, on the lizard. But before I do that, I, I just need to to mention that um, in these early dives with the club, we needed to know exact, the exact location of these wrecks and that was only possible from knowledge gained from local fishermen and also on charts. Um, so it wasn't just luck, we knew we had a pretty good idea where they were. So this next wreck, interesting one, the Pindos, a German four-masted steel bark. She was 2,500 tons, quite a big ship. She was wrecked off the lizard in February 1912, in fact, off to Knowles Point near Kovarak. Well, I remember most all about her. She had four huge steel masts. Um, she was only 50 40 to 50 feet deep, an absolutely amazing dive, and she was reputed to have been carry, carrying um, a cargo of nitrates. <coughs> She was lying most of it on her side. The masts were huge, the huge length, one of them. It was almost possible to enter, the, but we had broken off the, the base of the, the deck of the ship. Such a large diameter. Portholes in good condition as the wreck was quite broken up. So I remember that first day on the off, beautiful weather, and... Um, A fantastic dive on a bark, a German bark, which of course was a sailing ship. And in the space of the following years, we did a number of return dives on the Pindos because she was always so interesting. You never knew what you're going to find in the wreckage. So, staying with the lizard area, my next wreck is called the Juno. The Juno was a Norwegian ship, a steamship, wrecked off the lizard in July 1915. She was a depth which varied. She was lying on a a gully between 30 to 70 feet. You could sort of swim down by the side of her. Um, And... um, we didn't realise, of course, realise, of course, that sometimes you could be quite, quite deep without realising it because you went down so quickly. She was a huge ship. I haven't got a uh, memory of the tonnage, but a very interesting wreck. We did find part of the propeller, and for some reason, the propeller was broken. And. Um, So, I can't tell you much more about the Juno. I have no idea what she was carrying and how she got there. But many of these ships, of course, on the Lizard uh, came to an end because of fog. It was very difficult to see in fog, of course, and the coast is very dangerous in those conditions in the early days before satellite navigation. So, we dived on many wrecks on the Lizard Peninsula. Uh, We found wreckage. all sorts of places which we weren't able to identify, so we must have dived on a number of ships that we didn't know what they were and how they got there. The key of course to identifying any shipwreck is to find the ship's bell because it has the name on it and we were never that lucky but we always hoped we might find one. Another interesting feature is when you're looking for wrecks under the sea is if you see a chain you follow it He's either an anchor at the end or a ship, and we did this following through the. I remember diving and swimming through the enormous kelp fields, seaweed six or eight, ten feet high, like, like a forest of kelp, and you find a chain and you follow it, and uh, you never knew what you'd find at the end. So that, that was an often the case when we were diving on on wreckage. We didn't know um, where we were. remaining in um, the lizard area then, um, we always used to dive, of course, with the inflatable dinghy, there was usually six of us from the club who dived, and um, (coughs) it was uh, (coughs) another day that we went, we drove from Penzance with all our kit, and we drove through the port of Porthaustock, and this was going to be a fascinating dive, because we'd heard a lot about the wreck, and so few people had in fact dived on it. The Pothostock's a nice little beach. It's remains of a quarry with a big concrete um, quayside there, but we were able to dive from the beach on, on, um, uninterrupted because there was no fishermen working from there. And the wreck of the, Vol- the Volney is the one I'm talking about. She was in fact a, a Canadian ship, of 4,610 tons, so that's quite a substantial-sized ship. She was actually an armed merchant me- merchant vessel, and she sank off Potharstock in December 1917, en route from Montreal to Plymouth during the First World War. Reputedly, according to the locals, she had struck a German mine two miles east of the Manacles Rocks off the Lizard, and tried to limp into Falmouth Port, but sank on the way. We also found out that the cargo was was tinned meat, tinned butter and jam. And I remember we found lots of rusted tins when we dived on her. But she also carried, much more interestingly, a large quantity of anti-personnel shells, three-inch diameter, which were very potent. They had beautiful brass-trimmed fuse heads and were completely intact. So we dived on her. We motored, motored out from the beach, about I would say three quarters of a mile out to, in, into the bay, and um, we, we, we managed to get the marks from locals, and uh, we dropped the anchor right down on the deck of the the Volney. She was eighty feet deep, and I remember on that particular first dive. It was particularly fascinating because the visibility was so good. And in Cornwall, you know, off the coast, to get the visibility over 30 feet or even 20 feet, you were very lucky. But this was a bright sunny day and a blue sky and the visibility was quite good. I would say more than 60 or 70 feet distant. The wreck was huge, quite in- intact, with the big bollards still on the, on the deck and when I was diving down, I was following away Dennis and he was just ahead of me and suddenly the seabed right in front of me was a carpet of bright green. It was as bright as any lawn that had just been cut in the garden. It was so bright and it turned out when I got down to it, I put my hands into it. It was thousands and thousands of .303 bullets that had fallen out of the rotten box, rotten wooden boxes that were carrying them. And I brought some of these up, of course. It looked like a lawn. It was so so neat and so bright. So the copper and the bronze, of course, had turned green under the water. Well the fun began, we couldn't resist uh, lifting some of these 3-inch uh, anti-personnel shells, which were in such good condition. They were quite heavy. I managed to bring four, four up. And you might wonder how I did that. I had a sack with me and we used to have, wearing on our body, um, a special life jacket which we can inflate with a five cubic foot um, air bottle. And um, that, that, when I inflated my life jacket it gave me that extra lift so I was able to come up from 80 feet carrying these four shells. But I might say it was I had a fight all the way. It was quite difficult. The dive was about 40 minutes, so we, did, we didn't we did quite get, almost got into decompression time and we decided to risk it and not do um, decompression. So that was a wonderful dive, a dive which we would go and visit again on many times if the weather permitted during the summer holidays. So we motored back to the beach, loaded up with all these shells and bullets and the four shell castings which I had, um, were very heavy. Of course when we got to the beach, we were only anxious to know whether these shells were still actually live. And uh, so we took it in our, in our minds to investigate. Looking back on it, it was a stupid thing to do. But we took, uh, we took one of the shells apart with our diving knives and we found that the shell to be, all the shell-casing on, on the beach, we took, took on, We did this on the beach by the way, and we took the, the shell-cases apart and we found that the cordite packed like sticks of broom sticks into the, the shell-casing was indeed uh, looking in very good condition. So what did we do? Well, when you're young, you do stupid things. And we took out four shells, emptied all the cordite sticks into a pile on the sand, covered them with stones and and sand, and then got the sticks end to end, like pen to pen, pencil to paper, all the way along a line to make a fuse, about 20 feet long. And then we lit it with a match, and it went all the way along. And boom, up it went. It was just a big flash. Now, uh, Raymond Dennis, who Who'd been in the, the, the services during the Second World War realised that uh, it wouldn't be a, a big explosion because cordite only explodes dangerously when it's in a compact confined area. So having it all loose on the sand and the rocks was just a big flash and a, a huge puff of black smoke ascending into the sky. So we wanted to prove that they were dangerous, and we found out that they certainly were. After being under the ocean all that time since the First World War. So I need to make uh, a disclaimer here because um, I don't want young divers going out to the Volney today and picking up shells and doing what we did. We also discovered on the beach and later when I got home I was able to do it properly with a vise in my, in my garage. I took the fuse heads apart and there were three fuses in the fuel fuse heads which were timed, and you had a dial on the top of the shell head which was set for so many seconds to explode over the troops in the trenches in the First World War and scatter hundreds of lead balls over the top of them. So all the lead balls were on the beach we took out and the fuses we took out from the lead casings on the top of the shell. So there's a rider to this story. When I got back home the following Monday, I had the police knocking on my door. They accused me of, of being stupid and letting off ammunition on the beach of Perth They confiscated the four shells that I had and I never saw them again, which was tragic because I wanted to keep them for memorabilia and perhaps give them to my children one day. But they were taken from me and I was given a warning that the wreck actually belonged to a salvage company and they were going to salvage it at some time. And uh, whether they ever did or not, I don't know, because to salvage it would be dangerous, I would think, with so much live explosives on board the wreck. So we did dive back on the Volney on different occasions, um, uh, but this time we didn't remove any shells because we thought we'd be uh, apprehended again. But we did dive there illegally because it was owned by someone a wreckage salvage company. We never knew who they were and no one ever stopped us when we went there again. So that was the wreck of the Volney, and to my knowledge she's still there today. I want to talk now about a, a dive where we actually ventured further afield. In fact we planned a, a long diving weekend camping out uh, up at Port Lowe further up in uh, the south coast of Cornwall. So that way again we set out with our Diving gear and our inflatable dinghy and all the equipment, motors and everything. And we, we got up to Port Low Pitch camp and went down the pub which is a usual thing to do for divers. And then it became interesting because in the pub um, some local fishermen must have heard that we were, we were camping out and we were divers here in the pub. And two of them came along and approached us uh, with a proposition. The story relates to uh, a terrible tragedy which happened on the thirty-first of July, nineteen sixty-six, when a pleasure uh, boat—she was in fact a private cabin cruiser, forty-five feet long—she was called the Darwin, and she set out uh, to take day trippers out across the bay, and she was clearly um, kitted out, as one would expect for people to, to go on a, a pleasure boat. And the divers, the uh, fisherman rather I should say, um, wanted us to see if we could help them recover their trawl net. Now, the younger fisherman said that he, he felt sure that their fishing net was caught in the wreck of the Darwin. And when we asked him why, he said, well, of course, the Darwin was never found. She disappeared. has never been seen since. And, of course, that tragedy was terrible. 31 people, men, women, and children were lost. Um, eight children, in fact, died. And only two bodies were ever recovered uh, later. So they, they were sure that they snagged their net on the same route, the same path that the Darwin took when she set out across the bay uh, near Port Lowe that day. So he suggested that if we we could free his net, he would give us some money for it towards the club funds, but he wanted us to go out with him on the, on the Sunday morning, which was the following morning, and rendezvous and see if we could recre- retrieve his net. But I think he had a something else in the back of his mind and they both were anxious to be the fisherman who'd found the lost Darwin because he had been lost for so long and uh, it was a complete mystery i think they were after the kudos of actually finding finding a wreck so we agreed and um, we changed our plans for our, for our dive on that sunday morning and uh, we we got up very early in fact we one day uh, on the beach with a fisherman, uh, getting kitted up about 7 o'clock in the morning. Now, unfortunately, they couldn't get their fishing boat close to shore, so we had to kit up, get into the inflatable dinghy, and then motor out to the fishing boat, where we all climbed on board. And then um, they took our boat, our sea craft, in tow, and off we set towards they the marker buoy which they left in the water where the net was snagged which they thought of course they snagged the mystery wreck of the Darwin. Now I want to add at this time that uh, it was a lovely sunny day with a bit of a heavy cloud but what was disappointing was the wind The sea, the sea conditions were not good in fact I'll be honest with you it was pretty rough and the fishing boat was rolling and pitching and like a cork at times, but we went out a very long way, and uh, must have been I would say about three or four miles out to sea, and we got uh, to where the exactly uh, mark the marker buoy was located, and all the way out, we were all feeling a little bit anxious, and uh, you might wonder why. Well, the, the reason is very clear that. We were we were a bit anxious that we would in fact find the Darwin, the wreck of the pleasure craft, and uh, uh, it wouldn't be a very nice uh, dive finding a pleasure craft probably turned upside down, full of full of decaying bodies from the poor people who died on, in that uh, summer's day in July. Uh, in fact, uh, Raymond Dennis in particular was very anxious about it all and uh, he made me anxious even more so to be honest. Well when we got there um, as soon as the engine stopped on the fishing boat of course we were rolling and pitching around like a barrel and uh, it was very difficult to get kitted up. So the next obvious question was how deep is it here because I don't think the fisherman had any idea of the limitations of of us divers. So they did have an echo center on board and because the boat was pitching and rolling uh, it was difficult to get accurate readings but I remember it varied from 120 to 130 feet and sometimes it dipped down to a bit deeper and uh, so we, we had a discussion about it and thought well it's with, just within our capabilities if we if were able to do safe decompression on the way up depending, of course, how long we are going to stay down below. And then, of course, the next, the next uh, uh, debate, which was a bit uh, horrifying, to be honest, we had to decide who was going to lead the dive, who should go first and be first to find this possible dive on a wreck full of dead bodies. And so we decided to draw straws. And fortunately... Bob Carswell, he drew the first tour and I drew the second. So I was second diver and Raymond would be third and uh, we were to follow down uh, each other into the darkness uh, with, with a trepidation to be honest with you. Well, we launched into the into the sea, jumped into the sea. I followed Bob over and he started to pull himself down the, the orange marker boy rope going down towards the snagged fisherman's net and I followed close behind him Um, and uh, before very long we knew that we were at depth because as I think I might might have mentioned to you before that when you get to about 90 feet there's a sudden thermal barrier and it hits you so cold because we only had uh, wetsuits and we knew we were going deeper now and it was so dark. That was a bit disturbing. It was extremely dark. The visibility was poor. It was dark. It was cold. And I could only just see Bob, Bob's flippers in front of me as he went deeper down. When we got to about 120 feet we still couldn't see the bottom. And no sign of a wreck or no sign of any fishing net. But uh, suddenly... Um, some sand loomed up and it got lighter as if someone had switched on a light in a room. And uh, although the visibility was not good, we could now see the net floating um, like a balloon in the air all around us. This, of course, is, is dodgy for divers. And this is why you always have to carry a sharp knife because you never know. If you get snagged in those fishing nets, you could be doomed so we decided to swim around the back of the net and keep clear of it and then with intimidation we dived into a, a, a darker sort of area and it suddenly went very dark and there we found the the boards of the trawl net and they had wrapped themselves around the chain of the, of the boards and wrapped themselves around a huge rock Well. I can tell you with much relief that it was a rock, and uh, I was so glad that it, they had not snagged the, the wreck of the Darwin. I think I was uh, my heart was beating at twice the rate, thinking that we'd find this horrible scene of dead bodies on an upturned wreck. Getting the rock out from the um, the neck of the the tail of the sorry of the trawl net was very difficult, we couldn't even attempt it, it was too large, so we had to cut all the net around it, and then of course the net went suddenly went free after we took about a good 15 minutes to cut around this, this, this nylon net with our, with our sharp knives, and of course as soon as that happened, the fishermen must have realised by the rope going slack that the net was free, and they pulled it up with great haste not worrying about us, it seemed. So we had to come up without a rope, and um, we we assumed that we'd come up near, near where the boat was, but if he kept the, the net where it was, we could have followed that rope up and went exactly back to the boat. But he didn't do that. He pulled it all up. He winched it up, probably, and um, just to save his his net, what was left of it. And we had to service. Well, we were down 130 feet, I remember, at one point. Um, And I looked at my, my, my air gauge, and every time I took a breath, the indicator arrow dropped back about 30 degrees. And I soon realised that with every breath, I was consuming a lot of air. And, of course, consequently, an intake of a lot of nitrogen. So we were praying that, uh, on the way up, that Raymond and couple of the others, I had the, um, the, the presence of mind to set down a shot line with some bottles on it uh, which we could use to decompress. And in fact that was the case when we came up. We, we, we came up fairly close to the boat, I would say about 30 yards away from the boat, because we could just see the bottom of the boat and the ship, the boat's propeller so and then we saw the orange shot line and, and a bottle of, of, of compressed air hanging air with a demand valve hanging on it fixed to it so we thought all right now we're safe we got probably enough air to decompress ourselves at 30 feet and if we run out of air we've got a bottle a hand to give us the extra air we needed to do full decompression at this time i felt very cold i remember it distinctly cold and I felt a bit sick, Pulled it because I was anxious. And uh, Bob and I managed to grab a swim across, grab hold of the shot line, and we stayed there. We did 15 minutes at 30 feet and something like 10 minutes at 10 feet before we surfaced. It wasn't until later that we found that we actually had not done enough decompression time. But in the event, we uh, obviously did enough to be to be unhurt, but we actually broke the rules and didn't do enough decompression. Now we had the task of getting back on board the fishing boat, and I can tell you that uh, getting on board a a pitching and rolling fishing boat, when you're in diving gear with a lead weight around your waist and bottles on your back, is is almost impossible. We managed to get our our bottles off and um, Raymond pulled them aboard and I led weights from our waist. We managed to put aboard. Um, but getting on board the, the fishing boat with its with its side of the boat rocking and pitching and going as much as six or eight feet up into the air was a very difficult task. I didn't think we'd ever get on board, um, but we did. We were relieved, immensely relieved, that we hadn't found the dolphin and uh, the fisherman. We were also pleased that most of their net had been recovered, uh, including the, the wooden sideboards which were used to guide the net and trap the fish. Probably saved him about three or four thousand pounds worth of fishing gear, and he was very grateful. So we were pleased to come and get back on board, and then we motored back towards Port Lowell. They took our boat in tow as usual because it was a long way to go, four miles in the inflatable. And um, then close to shore, we, we decamped, decanted into the, uh, the the Darwin dinghy and got ashore, very much relieved. So that was the story of the Darwin, and um, not quite the end, because it's interesting that uh, it was 50 years later, uh, I remember, on the news, local news, that the wreck of the Darwin was actually found. And... Uh, some of it had been partly recovered and uh, it was the, the inquest uh, that actually discovered that the, the, the owners of the Darwin, the, the uh, cruiser, the private carrying cruiser, which was used for day trippers, did not have, in fact, a board of trade license. He was not licensed to carry passengers because he didn't have all the safety equipment and probably, to make the point more, poignant uh, the boat was not seaworthy she probably took in water who knows she sank and the weather conditions I don't think were that bad but she mysteriously disappeared and was never found until 50 years later so that was the end of the Darwin and of course there's uh, a rider to this story because uh, uh, much later 50 years 55 years more later I was with my cousin Molly Evans down in Falmouth and we went out for the day and had an ice cream by the pier and I told her the story that I've just related to you and with shock and horror she said actually she was a schoolgirl at the time she was 16 and she'd been offered a chance to go on that day trip on the Darwin and eight of her friends were actually lost on that on that terrible day so she was quite horrified and it was quite mysterious, in fact it was rather um, uncanny that uh, I didn't know at the time when I dived on it that Molly could have been on that boat and of course would have been lost. So that's the dolin and uh, I don't really want to go through that again because uh, finding a body in, in, in a wreck uh, must have been an awful would be an awful experience for any diver. So my next recording will be uh, my first dive on the Greek steamship, the Helios in Mounts Bay. Uh, By the way, at this point, I need to make a a correction, which I I made a mistake in my first podcast. When we dived on the steamship Mohegan on the manacles, I said we set off in the boat from Porthoustok. That is in fact incorrect. It was Kovrak that we went out from. Because it's much nearer to the manacles. It's just a minor point, but I think it needs to be corrected.